I was on a panel in San Francisco recently, and I was asked by someone in the audience when it was Q&A time about the technology that I was most excited about in the next six months ahead, and I had a one-word answer, and it was blockchain. And everybody laughed. And the reason they laughed is because I said it with a tremendous amount of sarcasm. And I said it was sarcasm because there's no more hyped term in the tech world than blockchain right now. If you can respond with blockchain to anything tech related, the naive will be fascinated and those who have any kind of a clue will chuckle because for the most part, blockchain is an idea and everybody and their mother has ideas about it. Not all of them are very good. Although in the world of artificial intelligence, there are some pretty good and, and interesting ideas about how blockchain and AI might combine to make artificial intelligence more accessible for more people and more businesses. This week's guest is Dr. Ben Gertzel. It's tough to put Gertzel in a nutshell, but if you imagine a super smart mad scientist focused exclusively on AI with a bunch of rock and roll style, that's probably the best way to encapsulate Ben Gertzel. Definitely a one-of-a-kind character, one of the leading voices in the domain of artificial general intelligence. And Ben speaks with us this week about how blockchain might be used in the future to be able to make AI more accessible for small and medium-sized businesses. He articulates roughly three major sort of transitions ahead that might make the technology more accessible for those who aren't developers and also might make AI solutions more findable for particular particular business problems when blockchain and AI are able to combine in particular ways. There's a number of different initiatives in this domain. Ben has one of his own at Singularity Net, which is his own effort in the near future here to sort of bring this combination of AI and blockchain to light. But the conversation itself opens up a lot of vistas of possibilities about what might happen in the combination of sort of open source AI and sort of a deregulated blockchain environment where different proprietary and open source AI solutions can be sort of findable and how that ecosystem might develop to make tools, again, more usable for folks who might not have a whole floor of data scientists. Lots and lots of interesting business insight in this particular episode. And it was also an interesting and fun episode for me as well. Reason being, the last time I interviewed Ben was five years ago. This was about a year after I had decided that sort of the future of intelligence and sentience would be my own life purpose in terms of determining that trajectory and ensuring that it went as well as possible. I emailed Ben out of the blue at being one of the very few people writing on this topic five years ago. This is long before Elon Musk was tweeting about these things. He couldn't have known me from Adam, but got on the phone and did an hour-long interview about the implications of artificial general intelligence and how that transition might go. I'll make sure that I link that in this particular show notes here for this episode on techemergence.com when this episode is live. But that was half a decade ago, and it's really neat to see how some of Ben's ideas about developing general intelligence and improving AI in general are sort of coming to light with some of these newer projects and what that might really mean in the business world. So this was a lot of fun for me. It was great to be able to reconnect with Ben a bit, and I think the business listeners will be able to get a lot out of this in terms of what does blockchain actually mean in the domain of AI other than being buzzwords? What could be the realistic possibilities that would improve our businesses and make tools more accessible, and Ben articulates that rather well. So without further ado, this is Ben Gertzel with SingularityNet here on the AI and Industry Podcast. So 
So Ben, first things first that I wanted to dive in with you on, I know you're working a lot on the open source and decentralized side of artificial intelligence. And I think a lot of the folks that listen to our program and certainly who read our research are interested in how is AI going to make itself accessible to the small and mid-sized business in terms of you know, accessible by price, accessible in terms of what kind of skills are required. How do you see the open source environment sort of contributing to accessibility in the coming years ahead? Well, I think open source is an extremely important ingredient in making AI accessible broadly to anyone who needs it, be that an individual, a researcher, a small business, mid-size or, or large business. But just having code be open source isn't enough because, I mean, right now, the AI code available open source and free online in GitHub and other repositories often is better, more capable, more intelligent than the AI code that you can get through, you know, Google Cloud, IBM, Bluemix, Amazon Cloud, Tencent Cloud. But the thing is, just because that code is out there doesn't mean the average business person or the average business software application developer knows how to use it. I mean, you've got to read what the code does, go through the documentation, look at the associated research paper, download it, get it to build, and all this stuff is beyond the scope of most people who aren't in the AI research field. So beyond just open source, there's another step that has to be taken, which is to take all this amazing AI code that, you know, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of developers, PhD students, and so forth around the world have built. We want to take all that code and make it more easily accessible for people who are not AI experts and who also don't have the funds to, you know, to hire Accenture or some major consultancy to do customization and integration for them. This is needed to really bring the AI revolution to every business. And at the same time, it's needed to enable the creators of AI code to monetize and profit from their creations without themselves having to you know, go work for a big tech giant or create yeah. a startup and sell it to that tech giant. This is sort of the part of the motivation for this singularity net project that I've launched recently to get together with a bunch of other colleagues. Well, let's get into to a little bit of color on this, Ben. I know that you've been thinking a good deal about it. You know, one of your prime endeavors here is exactly in this domain. When you think about open source and kind of decentralizing some of these AI tools, as you aptly mentioned, there's a lot of great stuff if you're smart with AI and coding and sort of AI languages that's available open source today. Accessibility, as you again aptly mentioned, there's a cost element, you know, paying expensive consultants to integrate and to build with these kinds of programs. And there's a serious learning curve in terms of implementing this. If you want to have a program that, you know, makes sense of images or annotates documents or whatever the case may be, it's not really push button simple. There's a lot to do here. Do you think that open source could make that learning curve any better? Or at the end of the day, will people everywhere, business owners everywhere, just kind of have to level up their machine learning skills? Or do you see through broader sort of accessibility, the sort of skill threshold being lessened in terms of what's necessary to garner value from AI? Is it possible that that needle could move? I think the skill threshold will be lessened in in terms of what, what skills and what knowledge is needed to leverage AI. 
I think that open source on its own doesn't solve that problem, but I think that the correct assemblage of you know decentralized control and inquiry methods can solve that problem. What one needs is, among other things, a standard set of APIs, a standard set of interfaces for accessing AI that carries out different types of tasks. And then one needs a bit of AI on the user interfacing side so that a business user can ask using ordinary language for an AI that does the thing that that they need and that then one needs, you know, a reputation and ranking system so that those AIs that carry out a certain function effectively will be flagged as good. Let's say that a business user needs AI that will identify what are the objects in a bunch of different pictures. And they could be pictures taken from a camera in their store or uploaded by customers or something. So if a business user needs AI to identify the objects in a bunch of pictures, I mean, what you'd like is a user can just type or speak somewhere, find me AI tools that can identify or label the objects in pictures, and then we'll receive a list of AI tools that are able to do that. And you see like how many star ratings they have. You see how much they cost. And then the, the integration with that doesn't have to be immediate for a non-programmer, but it has yep. to be as easy as like connecting a website to a database or something, right? Yeah. And, and not, not to require a PhD in AI, but just to require basic programming skills. So, I mean, really the standardization is the key part here. And it's tricky because, I mean, you may have 10,000 different pieces of code for assigning labels to images, and they may be written by different people all over the world using different algorithms, and that's how it should be. But then you need a standard set of interfaces by which all of these image labeling AIs like accept folders of images to analyze and by which they output the the labels for the images. So they all need to be talking the same language. But then this becomes a sort of democratic control problem because what what we don't want is to have like a dictator of image labeling interfaces who says (laughs) like every everyone building an AI that labels images must take images in this format and must give output according to this yeah, structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, AI is evolving too fast, yep, right? There's always new fast. things happening. So you need a democratic sort of governance and rating mechanism for the actual interfaces of the AIs. So if you look at it now, in something like IBM Bluemix or Amazon Cloud, I mean, you have some standard APIs for a certain set of tasks that these big companies have identified as really important to their customers. And then you have certain AI algorithms behind the scenes that work according to these interfaces. But it becomes it becomes quite limited, partly because the cost base of these companies is very high, right? So I mean yep. they they support a small set of tasks, they support a small set of interfaces and a small set of, of algorithms. And that it's mostly reasonably good what they offer but it's not broad enough to meet the needs of the vast 
majority of businesses out there. So, I mean, if you're doing like accounting or you have a software company that's selling a certain type of service online, I mean, the odds are that these companies haven't thought about the exact problem that, no, that you need to solve. And not. so then, yeah, then there's a big customization process you need to do. So in essence, what we're talking about is like you're disintermediating big tech companies in the AI as a service market, because we have a lot of AI developers out there now, yep. and we have a lot of potential AI users, and we want there to be a way for AI developers and AI users, where users in this case are businesses and, and the people who are building businesses, IT systems, but yep. they're not AI gurus. We want a way for them to connect together directly. And in this way, you can have a much greater diversity of AI tools being offered by the creators to the consumers. And then the, the really cool thing that comes out of all this, though, is once you built this framework, the AIs can start outsourcing work to each other. And that's, that's that would where be you pretty get, intense. Yeah, that would be pretty intense. I, that's where you get something that can take it to the next level because you can get a sort of whole is greater than the parts type dynamic. For example, if you have an AI that's supposed to summarize a document for an end user, if the AI who is summarizing the document for the user for some price finds a video in that document, it could then outsource summarizing that video to some other AI that's good at summarizing videos, right? So the AIs can outsource work to each other behind the scenes. So it's like an app store for AI, yep. but it's an app store in which the apps can do work for each other too. That takes things to a different level. You have let's, this sort of let's try to, I'm just going to try to put this in a bit of a nutshell. So I totally see where you're going. I think that the, you know, I'm reminded of the Minsky sort of society of mind thing where you have all these yeah, but, kind of specialist right, right. parts, right? It's an economy of mind. Ah, right? and okay, so nice. App, I mean, I analogy. Wish, I wish, yeah, I wish Marvin were still around. I mean, I knew him a bit. We argued a lot, but he would love this idea because, <laughs> I mean, the society of minds in a way is right, but what we found is in order to get the minds in the society of minds to really like bind together tightly into a sort of meta level mind, you need to make it an, an economy of minds. And that's because an economy of minds gives you ways to quantify the relationships between the different AIs in the society. And, and, that, and that, have, a, have a bit of meritocracy, right? And I guess this is what I was going to try to touch on. I'm going to try to nutshell some of what you've shared in terms of dynamics <laughs> go, that might, I'm going to, just making this digestible for the business audience here. I'm hearing a couple things that seem like they could be forces that make AI more accessible as we move forward, you know, in the coming decade ahead. One of them that you articulated is finding a way to draw AIs into kind of a common set of APIs so that through a single interface, people can have access to a lot. Otherwise, just the friction per integration, per whatever, is going to be so much that it's going to make the learning curve higher, the cost higher, and that's harder. So that's one thing. A second thing is some way for, kind of like on Airbnb or on Amazon, some kind of rating per product so that people kind of have an ability to understand and garner by merit, hopefully. And of course, again, Amazon and Airbnb have 
review issues, and there's ways to go around those. But I think we all agree that it's better that Amazon has ratings than it doesn't, even if a good percentage of them are fake, because we have a general sense of what works and what doesn't. Right now, comparing B2B software, it's not that easy to find specific use cases and compare them. I think in an ideal world, it sounds like you think that there'd be a better way of going about that. And then a third dynamic you touched on is making particular applications of AI accessible through a simple interface where nobody has to say, oh, I know I need TensorFlow. They just say, I need to know when people are stealing from my freaking store and I need that to be detected on video and have that kind of a typed or spoken command be the beginning of your search, not poking into a hundred different programs and seeing which one has the capability. So making search easier, connecting APIs, and then also having a meritocracy. It sounds like these are forces that together might start to make the small and mid-sized businesses be able to grasp a bit of AI. Am I on the right page, Ben? Yeah, you're you're definitely on the right page. It's uh, interesting to hear you summarize it in that way from the user's point of view, because I mean, me coming at it as an <laughs> yeah. AI researcher and technologist, yep. I'm thinking about it more like, like, like what are the... Like a mad scientist, the ba- like, like the mad well, scientist what, yeah, you what, are. What are the back-end mechanisms that allow this? Well, what yes. allows it is, you know, we have democratic voting among agents on the ontology and the interfaces, <laughs> and we have AIs that can outsource work to each other, and then we have an economy instead of society of mind so that the whole system can do assignment of credit properly, right? So the connections between two AIs in this network are sort of like the synapses between two neurons in the brain or something. But yeah, you're right. These backend mechanisms that we are building and experimenting with, these are what enable the easy discovery of services and the low-cost customization of services to specific vertical applications that you describe. It's open source as a framework. Much of the code running in it will be open source. Some of the specific AI agents running in it could be proprietary. I mean, just as the Android Play Store can have some proprietary and some open source apps in it. But the, the decentralized organization of the network of AIs is a key point. We've designed communication and governance and identity mechanisms so the whole network organizes itself. Anyone can put an AI online and have the AI announce it's there to the network and then anyone can put a service service request in. Right, And so it's peer-to-peer it's decentralized and there's no gatekeeper. Instead, yeah, it's a self-organizing system of producers and consumers. And I mean, this is either either incredibly exciting or incredibly scary, depending on your position relative to it and your own mental orientation. Could be both. Probably when people hear you talking about it, it gets a little bit scary, but the world needs a good eccentric way of framing things from time to time. The point that you're sort of building towards, you know, with these three factors coming together. And it'll be interesting to see how the open source and decentralized versus the proprietary worlds of AI applications sort of merge. Obviously, you guys are making a pretty strong attempt at this. And I think there's a lot of dynamics worth considering. I think one of the benefits that could come about with 
having decentralized systems where people can just call out what they need. You know, I need to test the effectiveness of marketing copy with email, or I need whatever the case may be and just be able to find applications, is that you just have a higher volume of people being able to test and try it. And my thought is, in order to make this stuff as close to plug and play as possible, like, for example, Ben, you mentioned to make it as easy as putting a plug in on WordPress and kind of like setting up some basic settings in a WordPress plugin. That stuff is so simple. There are third graders with WordPress sites that are, you know, nicer than mine, right? The user interface has just been, so many people have used WordPress. They figured out how to make it so you don't have to code. It's been tried and tested so many times. There's a path for UI there that makes it work. In order for those paths for image recognition, paths for document summarization, paths for applications in legal and accounting and everything you talked about, I think kind of like WordPress, we just need a ton of people using it and trying different UIs and just figuring out which ones are winners because they're going to get the high reviews. They're going to get a lot of uses and then other people are going to model them. And I think that that'll facilitate that economy element where we have competition and meritocracy and we get to model a bit of nature, the animal that develops a certain kind of mandible and all of a sudden it's eating a lot of the food. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah. That's that's exactly right. I mean, this is artificial life in its own way. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a digital biological organism which self organizes and grows, and it, it ingests money from users and it ingests data from people. <laughs> and on the other hand, it provides services to people and it provides value to businesses. Right. So I mean, yeah. it's sort of a it's like a symbiotic digital biological organism which Um, if it's providing value it will grow bigger and bigger and ingest more and more resources and more and more information into it the visuals for that ben are pretty great i just (laughs) i had a very a very borg-like visual that just popped into my mind of like giant robotic mouths but yes i think that is the idea to have that kind of competition like we see in nature where you know, the strong survive. And in this case, the useful survive. And useful is not just how well does it get results, but in my opinion, and I think you're with me on this, useful is going to be how easy is it for this small business, this mid-sized business, and this mid-sized business to get it up and running? Because maybe it's not the best image recognition, but maybe they're getting all the damn users because people can actually use the thing without a PhD. And it seems like... I think there's many levels of agents in a network like this. So there are some agents that are end user facing and there can be others whose role is on the back end do work for these end user facing AI agents, right? So there might be some AI nodes in this network that are just really easy to use and the results are presented in a way that's really easy to understand. These AI agents may on the back end outsource work to other AI agents that yeah. That solves some of the hard problems in, internally. I mean, much as in the human organization, you have certain people whose jobs are to interface with customers and understand their problems and present the results. But on the back end, these sort of user-facing people can outsource the hard intellectual problems to other human beings who may be better at solving that nugget of a really hard technical problem. And that's part of the beauty of having... AIs outsource work to other AIs. Analogies galore. That's good. So I think this gives people some good things to chew on. I know we're coming up on time, Ben. I'm thinking for the audience here because, again, these are matters that I think are pretty pertinent for companies that are looking to make these technologies accessible, looking to leverage AI to kind of keep an edge and not become a dinosaur in, in their industry when and where it's appropriate. If you're running a smaller or mid-size 
business, you know, and, and you're trying to follow kind of these dynamics in the AI roadmap ahead, what would you be doing? And, and let's say you don't have a PhD, right? Let's pretend like you're not, you know, you where you spent the last 30 years in AI, you know, but you're running a company, you're, you're making money. What are you doing now to kind of keep your antennae up for what kinds of applications might be relevant for you when? Because I think a lot of folks, you know, they've either given up and said, okay, well, I need a PhD for this stuff. It's interesting to learn about, but I just can't do anything yet. And other people are trying to grasp at all the straws, but it's too damn complex for them right now. How would you advise kind of a small business owner is looking at this ecosystem develop, kind of keep their, their eyes on the ball as to what might actually matter for their company, if you have any closing thoughts on that? That's a challenge because the scene is constantly changing and there's new algorithms and advances coming out all the time. With the current crop of AI technologies, a lot of it's data-driven. So, I mean, looking at what data you have that others may not have or others may not be paying attention to, and then what judgments do you need to make or would you like to be able to make based on that data? I mean, you're looking at, like, what were the inputs to the AI be? What were the outputs to the AI be? Then you have to make a judgment of whether current AI technology can contribute to those decisions based on the inputs. And I mean, if you don't know underlying AI technology, then the best you can do is look at comparables of what other yeah. people are doing. And, and I mean, this is what a framework like our Singularity Net platform, among other things, would would make a lot easier because, I mean, you can have like context-specific ratings of agents like, oh, this vision processing agent. You know, it's especially good at like recognizing what objects are being carried by people like walking around in an indoor environment. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. Five stars for that, right? Yeah, and so yeah, then, yeah. then once you know what inputs you have and what outputs you need, you could look at like which AI agents have been used for other cases with similar inputs and outputs. Whereas now, without a sort of automated discovery and rating mechanism, for AI as a service, you're down to searching online in forums or asking people, right? Or, or, or just tuning into Twitter, which is a really bad idea. In, <laughs> in, some, in some respect, this is what we attempt to do at Tech Emergence is cover, okay, what are the biggest five banks in the United States using for artificial intelligence that we know about and what have been the results that we know about and sort of what's the analogy for other smaller companies. We try to cover as much of that as we can, but obviously there's deeper levels of that that hopefully the future will hold and you guys are trying to chip away at, which would be more direct comparison stuff. But I think that yeah. the takeaway seemed to be start with your raw materials, which for businesses is what is your unique and proprietary data and how could that give you an edge? It sounds like that was kind of the, the crux of the advice. Yeah, there. I mean, the data and then the questions. I mean, if you had... If you had an oracle and you could ask that oracle questions based on the data that you have, like, what are the questions? And actually, that's a lot of what I do when I do AI consulting. It's translating, you know, a commonsensical question that a customer has into a sort of precisely formulated question that can be fed to an AI algorithm, which is not that unlike designing a statistical study in, in medicine or psychology or something. Like, how do, you, how do you take your question and make it a, a rigorous question that can actually be evaluated based on data? And we need AI to help solve that problem, right? Of, of totally turning the fuzzy, agreed. Turning yeah. the fuzzy requirement into an exact request. And when AI is helping solve that problem, then the ease of applying AI 
across the board becomes much greater. And what's intriguing to me is to realize that, you know, the same things that are needed to make AI sort of more democratically applicable and more useful to everyone, these are many of the same things that are needed to make AI move more and more toward general intelligence. Because that's been my <laughs> main course. thrust. As, yeah, well, my main course. thrust as an AI researcher is like, how do you move from narrow AI to AGI? And what we see is that with a, a decentralized sort of heterogeneous democratic approach, like we're taking in singularity net, I mean, this approach, it's the right way to kind of foster the emergence of AGI and more and more general intelligence at the same time as providing AI to more and more different users doing more and more different things. If you do kill two birds with one stone on that one, Ben, I'll, I'll be a happy camper, particularly if it turns out well. It certainly is one way to, to strike at AGI. And I know for a fact that you and I could easily go on on that topic in and of itself. I, those who know me sure. well know that that's what I'm most interested in. And people who followed you know that that's what you dive into as well. I, I'm wary of our time here, but I think that that's also fruitful food for thought in terms of, you know, when does this turn into sort of the post-human capability level as opposed to kind of the set of narrow to-dos. And I'm sure we'll be able to tackle that in another time. But I, th I think for now, people have got sure. some good stuff to chew on in terms of the dynamics of AI ahead. What are the forces at play that might make things more accessible? I think this has been really insightful from that perspective. And hopefully folks can use this to kind of chew on how this might apply to their own companies. Ben, thanks so much for sharing your perspectives with us here on AI and industry. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week. Thank you.